0: We have been going through kind of the, the, what would you call it, the afterglow of the Sermon on the Mount, I suppose, Uh, finish the Sermon on the Mount, but there's so much there and so much we need to talk about that I'm not ready to quite let it go. And so last week we were talking about um, how this way of Jesus is actually an experience of degreeless love. And for those of you who are not familiar with that particular term as I'm using it, God's love has no degree. God's love has no proportions. There's no way to measure God's love because it is infinite. It's beyond our capacity to, to be able to comprehend, apprehend. You know, All we can do is experience it in real time. And once we do, things begin to change in our lives. But we first have to come to terms with the fact that God's love has no degree. That messes with our heads. It messes with our sense of justice because God's love is not just, it's just perfect. And so there's a big difference here in the love that Jesus is trying to show us. And everything in the Sermon on the Mount is this radical deconstruction of what we think we know so that we can get to a place where we're emptied out enough that we can actually accept something as radically different as degreeless love. So we've been on this 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 tack. I promised you today that we would start to get into how we can get into the experience. And this is really going to be a two-week process. So we're going we're gonna to do the first half this week. And then I think, isn't next Sunday Father's Day? Yeah, OK, so and then we'll have to break for Father's Day. So I'm really making you wait. Sorry about that. Now, the effect, if you don't know, 15 years ago, we just hit our 15th anniversary. Fifteen years ago, we started as a recovery church, a recovery ministry, actually, that also worshiped together is the way that we understood ourselves at the time. And when you're working with alcoholics and addicts, when you're working with people who are in recovery, one thing that you, you learn really quickly is that abstract concepts don't help, you know? Just thinking about these things aren't going to get you where you need to go. What someone in early recovery needs are concrete steps that they can take, and just one at a time. You don't need the whole thing. You just need, this is the next step I take, and the one after that, and this is who's going to be holding my hand as I do. Those kind of things that are so basic. And so this idea of the grind between abstract concepts, theology, and ideas, as opposed to concrete steps, was something that we really had to come to terms with as we were bringing recovery into a spiritual realm. Now, if you take a look at what Jesus is doing and really analyze Jesus' teaching, what you realize is Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. He doesn't spend time with abstract concepts. He doesn't really give a theology at all. He assumes that his listeners, his people in the the center of Judaism already have that. What he's giving them is concrete steps for getting from somewhere to someplace else. And that someplace else is the experience of this degreeless love that he calls the Father's love. Abba, Abba's love. He calls it kingdom. He calls it many different things, trying to get this state of being across to them that is possible here and now in this life. If we can cross this hurdle, you see. Now, the other thing that we figured out really quickly, certainly I did, was that we're all recovering from something. Okay, there's not one of us who isn't recovering from something in our past who doesn't have still potholes left over, unfinished business that we're papering over with some kind of obsessive-compulsive You know, activities. And so, since we're all recovering, we all need these concrete steps. We need to make a connection between any of the theology that we talk about or any of the theology that we're still carrying around and how that relates directly to the next step that we take, the next choice or decision that we make. That action connected to that thought, that theology, is what is important to us, not the theology or the concept itself, but how it connects to the next step that we are going to take. Now, we talked about this, remembering that this doing along Jesus' way is still degreeless itself because we are so caught up in the law and caught up in obedience and caught up with doing something, performing for a reward from God. All of that has to go out the window. When you're talking about degreeless love, The approval is already there. God has already given everything that he can give. So what is it that we're performing for? What is it that we're trying to earn? But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to do along Jesus' way. But the doing of it is really a letting go of all the things that we're carrying around that block the view of this degreeless love so that we can actually see it. So we can become convinced of it so that it gets down deep enough where it's actually making a difference in the attitudes we have about life and the way that we're experiencing it and the choices that we make. We talked about one of our fallacies is is that we think we need to go up to God and we measure our progress by looking down and seeing how far we've risen. But in truth, what Jesus is telling us is you don't go up to meet God, you actually go down from the ego's imaginings of grandeur, we need to go down to a place where all of that just is on the floor. And we can see this humble servant God that Jesus is portraying for us, this unassuming God. And so everything is opposite of what we think from a legal perspective, from a performance perspective, from a physical perspective which is why Jesus sounds the way he does with all these impossible expressions and things that just spin our heads around like Linda Blair, right? The thing that we have to understand about Jesus' way is that Jesus' way is not a way to heaven. It's not just another set of rules to follow. It's not another litmus test for God's approval. It's not a way of getting to heaven or getting to God's approval, right? It's not a means to an end at all. Jesus' way is actually an end in itself. It's the only way for us to experience this degreeless love. It's the only way to experience that the approval that we're seeking, we already have. It's already been given since the beginning of time and since certainly our first breath. We already have the things that we seek. We just don't know it yet because all of this other stuff is in the way. So Jesus' way is a way of experiencing the real reality of our lives, of our relationship with God. And it's mind-blowing. It just takes us in a completely different direction. So this business of knowing God that we ended with in the Sermon on the Mount, God saying, I never knew you, even though you did all these wonderful things, getting away from accomplishment, right? This business of knowing God simply means to have spent enough undefended time with God, to get a sense of God's true nature. And that word, undefended, is so important. You probably get a sense of what I'm talking about. But to be completely undefended is to be completely vulnerable, to be completely open, to not be holding anything that we've been carrying around our whole lives, decades, as a defense against the fears that we have, as a defense against the abandonment, the hurt, the trauma, whatever we have experienced in life, to lay those arms down and just be completely present and open, that's the kind of time that we're talking about that will give us a sense of who God really is. You know, it's just the same way with people, isn't it? I mean, how do you really get to know a person? We think we know people from the media, you know, but... They're far removed, and they're, they're projecting through media and everything else. Then as we get to know a person, especially in a dating situation, those of you who are in dating situations, you know, who's really sitting across the table from you? You know, what are they projecting? You know, what is it that you think? And especially with Internet dating, right? It's like, okay, now you're even further removed from the reality. How do you really get to know a person? It's by spending enough undefended time with them. You undefended, they undefended, vulnerable to each other, open to each other, willing to let each other see who's really there. You know, I developed the three-year rule. You know what the three-year rule is if you're dating somebody? You know, If after three years you still haven't decided if you want to stay with this person, marry this person, the answer is no. <laughs> because after three years you've had a chance to see if you're really spending undefended time, if you're not still projecting on each other. But after that amount of time, you've had a chance to see people in all different situations. You see how they operate. You see the choices they make. You know something about them that is not just data points. It's actual experience. You've discerned something. And it's exactly the same with God. This way of Jesus is a way of experiencing God undefended, vulnerably, so that we can know something about have intimately experienced this love, this degreeless love, that God actually is. Not that he does or chooses, it's who and what he is. Spend enough time up close with God, and you will become convinced of who God really is. This degreeless love, this reality So to set some concrete steps for us, to follow the concrete steps of Jesus' way, the first thing that we have to do is realign our thinking. Our thinking gets in the way. Our thinking shelves us out, makes it impossible for us to even consider that such things may be true. And the the really sneaky thing is that even after you may have convinced yourself, you know, intellectually affirmed that you believe something different, that you believe in this degreeless love, That's still not what's driving your bus. What's driving your bus is much deeper in your unconscious. And that takes a lot longer to be able to come up to the surface and let these things permeate. Because the only way you get there, you don't get it out of book or out of study. You get that simply by acting, living, experiencing, risking something, and sometimes getting burned and hurt and sometimes not. But that's the way that we learn deeply That's the way that we know. And so realigning our thinking is the first step that will allow us to even move in this direction for real, to take the first steps and risk what needs to be risked in this direction to find out whether this love that Jesus is talking about is really true or not, whether we can be convinced of it or not. We need to be absolutely crystal clear on these steps that Jesus is telling us that comprise his way. So let's take a look at what Jesus says, right at John 13. This is the Last Supper, verse 34 starting at. This is the Last Supper. So Jesus is just hours away from the crucifixion, right? Less than 24 hours away from his death. And you've got to figure your impending death is, is, a, is, a, is a deadline that really focuses you, you would imagine, right? You get really focused at this point, and these are the people that you love the most. These are the people that you have been with for years. You've lived together, ate together, t- slept and breathed, and did everything together. These are the people you really want to understand, and you know they really don't yet. You know, the apostles leading up to the crucifixion in the last week were anything but clear on what Jesus was about. And so one more time, he's trying to get them to understand. And so he's going to give them this new commandment to try to summarize it I'll put a point on it. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another... No esoteric theology there. No abstract concepts there. No big highfalutin structure there. Love one another as I have loved you. That is the way that people will know that you really are on this way of mine. That you are my follower. Because you have love for one another. And for no other reason. Not what you say you believe. Not how many times you go to temple. Not what you sacrifice there. Not how much you give to the poor even. Not what you build. Not what you preach or how loudly you proclaim my name. Do you love one another? Is that just the basis of your life? Then people will know that you are mine. And so just before the crucifixion, Jesus is summarizing all of this. He's trying to restate the goal, the point, the purpose, right? The outcome of his way. It's all about love. All about love. It all comes down to love. Experiencing and receiving this love until we become convinced of it. Until we actually start to trust it. And when you trust something, then your fear starts to subside. Trust and anxiety are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. When you trust something, then the anxiety and the fear starts to go down. To be completely convinced, to begin to trust this degreeless and inexhaustible love, at least enough that we don't try to hoard it anymore. We're not holding on to it tightly. We're not trying to control it. And we're not fearing the loss of it anymore, because it's not possible. When we finally get to that point that we're not holding on to the love, that we think if we let it go, there won't be any more somehow. If I just slip on this one thing, then the supply is going to be cut off. When that fear goes away, when you realize the true nature of things, that you could no more cut off the supply than you could empty the oceans. When that starts to sink in, then you can start to let it flow through you to all others, even to the enemy. You can let it flow. You don't have to dam it up anymore. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. It becomes a very different kind of experience that you're just a conduit through which something is flowing and constantly flowing, inexhaustibly flowing. When this sense of degreeless love really sets in. There is no more fear of loss, of punishment, of abandonment. You do become free to be undefended, to be fearlessly vulnerable. That doesn't mean perfectly so. We're always going to have our fears and things that hit us, of course. But you'll be characterized by that fearless vulnerability and that changes everything. John then puts a really fine point on it in his first in his first letter look at 1 John 4 this contains our signature verse right here 1 John 4:19 but going back to verse 16 he writes we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us now let's rephrase some of this because to know means to intimately experience and to believe means to be absolutely convinced of and trusting in. Those words in the original languages can't be separated from those ideas. So what he's really saying is, we have come to have intimately experienced and have become completely convinced and trust the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this... Abiding, right? Intimate experience, undefended time together. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, also are we in this world. Think about what that means. As God is, as the way God loves in this degreeless, inexhaustible way, as God is, so are we in this world when we are one with him. See, that's Jesus saying, all these things you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these. And we think that we are doing this by some sort of substitutionary, vicarious atonement. No. It's personal. It's imminent. It's now. If we're not doing it, if we aren't involved in it, engaged in it, then what are we doing? We need to be part of the process. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. That's simple. That's straightforward, that concrete. You know, for my money, if you just took the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and you took this passage right here, you'd have it all. (laughs) That's it. That's what we need. This small, just two little paragraphs is so succinct and just puts it all out there. How do we not see this? How do we remain under the law How do we remain running to perform for God's approval when we see something like this? Hang on to that and then interpret the other ones that seem to contradict in terms of this. This is where we need to be. It couldn't be clearer. The focus of Jesus and John, the apostles of the early church, post-Pentecost, was all about love and all about the effects of love on our choices and on our lives and on our attitudes. We are following Jesus' way when we are experiencing this degreeless love, when we are becoming convinced of it. And that's the basis of everything, free from fear, trusting. If we're still measuring things, right, if we're still trying to control, then we're still living in fear. And love is not perfected in us. We're not convinced yet. We are still fearful. And here the church has hampered us, unfortunately. The church, as well as society around us, has continued to focus on control and control points. Law, punishment, theology, doctrine, these are all control points, and they're all based in fear. And to the extent that the church has used fear to try to drive us into the arms of a loving God, it's gone the other way. You can't do that. Jesus said, like breeds like. You're not going to get figs from thorn bushes and you're not going to get love from fear. It just doesn't work that way. Fear is going to breed more fear. Until we take that quantum leap, until we actually allow ourselves to fall into what we hope is the arms of a loving God and find out that he really does catch us, we can't take those first steps in love. Love will breed more love. And so the church has gone and done us a disservice in this respect. It's keeping us in fear. And all of that, together, makes this degreeless love impossible for us to see. You know, there's a dirty little secret that I need to tell you. Degreeless love, perfect love, can't be controlled. It just can't. It's absolutely out of control. It defies law, it defies justice. To say that everyone is loved equally, no matter what, that God is love, and just indiscriminately showers it, that, that offends us if we've been working hard to be good, right? It's out of control. You can't hang a church on this perfect love, this degreeless love. It's not going to work, at least not the institution of the church. Actually, degreeless love is anarchy in the macro. In the micro, it's everything. But how do you hang an institution on something that is degreeless, that has no way to be measured? On the other hand, though, a community of people, a group of people, each of them or enough of them convinced of and acting on this degreeless love, this perfect love, that's kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is what it looks like in operation from the bottom up, not from the top down. You can't control kingdom from the top down. And you don't need to. It shapes itself. Kingdom shapes itself from the bottom up in the hearts of the people who comprise it. But anyone seeking control and power and fame, right, leading some sort of organization, is going to look at perfect love and look at degreeless love as an enemy because it disallows them from being able to do what they are compulsed to do. Because people in kingdom really don't need leaders. Think about that. People in kingdom don't need leaders. They don't need law. They don't need theology. And they don't need doctrine. Because all of that is either pointing to this experience of degreeless love, of perfect love, or it doesn't matter at all. It's an end in itself that is going nowhere. But if it's pointing in that direction, great. If it's not, you can throw it out because it's not taking you where Jesus says, we need to go if we are going to have the relationship with Abba that he has. And then once you are convinced, then you don't need those control points anymore, do you, in your life? There's a great saying from Chuang Su, who was a Chinese philosopher three centuries before Jesus. And he says, you know, the purpose of a fish trap is to catch a fish. And once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit. Once the rabbit is caught, the snare is forgotten. And the purpose of words is to convey ideas. Once the ideas are grasped, then the words can be forgotten. He says, show me a person who has forgotten words. That's the one I want to talk to. Lovely the way that that is stated, same paradoxical way, trying to slam us into into a whole different way of thinking. And the same thing is here. The purpose of religion is to get us to experience and embrace perfect love. But once perfect love is experienced and embraced, we don't need the forms anymore that got us there. To live in kingdom, we do. To live in community, we do. In terms of the relationships that we have with other people, yes. But now something is happening internally that changes everything. If you want to lead an organization, if you want to have control over the organization, that is not your friend. (laughs) And you will fight that. You will continue to use forms that are fear based in order to keep the institution going and growing and healthy. But once we're convinced, Once we are convinced of degreeless love, it's going to allow us to do two things, just two things. But those two things are everything. The first thing that you can do once you have a sense of what this love is all about is that you can accept life on life's terms exactly as it presents in any moment. The good, the bad, the ugly, the happy, the traumatic. You can accept it for what it is. You don't need to self-medicate. You don't need to run from it. You don't need to do it. You can accept life on life's terms. And secondly, you can continue to live with a sense of hope and gratitude. Those are the two things that degreed us love will let us do. But until we know that we have a love that we can't lose because we can't gain it either, it just is, we will be too fearful to do either of those two things. All those people that we were working to help through recovery, why were they recovering from something? Why were they addicted in the first place? Because they couldn't accept life on life's terms. There was no sense of hope. There was no gratitude. And for us, even if we're not using substances and we're in some sort of process addiction, it's the same. If we can't live accepting life as it presents with hope and gratitude, then where are we? We certainly are not trusting. And if you are living with those two essentials in place, if you can honestly look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at that, then what you believe, your personal theology, is true for you. Well, it's true enough to allow you to be able to do that. But you have to keep in mind that you're always just one trauma away from losing that again, aren't you? Something will come. Some loss will hit you so hard that suddenly you're not able to accept life on life's terms. Suddenly that sense of hope and gratitude is fleeting. And then you realize you need to take another journey through the experience of this perfect love with Abba. Another hero's journey, another rite of passage, another stages of grief, however you want to look at it. But at the end of that journey, when you come back to where you started again, if you can read install that sense of hope and gratitude that ability to accept life even as it has hurt you and be willing to become undefended again to get hurt again to relate and connect again then you're back in that what you believe cognitively is allowing you to do that it's true enough all our theology is wrong at some point It needs to be right enough to allow us to walk Jesus' way to experience this love and to get to this point. And that's not enough for us if we're still fearful. What we're looking for and what we're obsessing over is something that is certain, that we just are absolutely certain is true and everything else is false. But that's not what we get along the spiritual path. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago, certainty is a unicorn? We're never actually gonna get to certainty, but what we can get is to conviction. We can believe, can't prove it, but we can believe and be convinced of something because we've experienced it for ourselves. And of course, the problem is you can't control conviction either, right? It just comes to you when your experience has become sufficient, when you have spent enough undefended time with a person or with God then the conviction and the trust comes to you. You can't grab it. You can't control it. And that's why Jesus says his way is the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because if you don't experience the Father, you will never know these things, and you can't manufacture them any other way. And you don't need to. All you have to do is just keep showing up undefended to your life, to your prayer life, to whatever it is that you do, and Jesus' way will come to you. This conviction will come to you. You might be asking, is this really possible? Does it really work that way? It just sounds too easy. Believe me, it's simple to say. It's not easy to do. But yes, it's really possible. And the early church showed us what this looks like in community. You know, when church, quote unquote, was really just small groups of people in their homes, scattered throughout the eastern Mediterranean basin, living in community with each other, with no top-down control, just people kind of unregulated, wild and crazy, meeting in the way that they did, this was when something different was happening in Christianity, And that's not to say that there were no problems in these groups, Lord knows. Just read Paul's letters. He's constantly trying to fix the problems that were going on in these communities. And it's not to say that everyone in these communities was convinced. Everyone was on a spectrum, right? But before the church grew up into becoming a powerful institution, becoming a state religion of the Roman Empire, allied with Roman power, it was characterized by this love that made it an unstoppable force within the empire. So at least 51% of those people in these small communities were practicing this kind of love that gave it that character. And what does that look like? I want to read you some quotes from early church fathers to kind of get a sense of who these people were and the impression that they were leaving on people outside of the faith. What did that look like? First of all, in in Acts, chapter 2, verse 44, here's a description from Luke, and this is in the first century. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them, that means shared them, to all as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So that's from our scriptures, a description of this early church and the character of it and how they related to each other, how they took care of each other. But now let's go outside of the canon of the scriptures and let's take a look at some of the early Christian philosophers and teachers and bishops Writers, theologians, what did they say? One of them is Tertullian, who lived in North Africa, Carthage, just across the Mediterranean from the Italian peninsula in the second to third centuries now. We're jumping about 150 years, almost 200 years after the crucifixion. He wrote a letter to the Roman authorities in 197 CE called Apologeticus, which was a plea to these Roman authorities to defend the Christians from the persecution that they were suffering at the hands of the of the state. I'm trying to get some justice for this group in the face of persecution. And so, if you think about it, Christians were demonized in the Roman Empire since the mid-60s of the first century. Nero was the one who started it all. Good old Nero, you know. We believe now most likely he started the great Roman fire in 64 CE. And they blamed the Christians, and that began the persecution of the Christians. And Christians were demonized in the Roman media, quote-unquote, such as it was. you know. But they had all their talking points and all the ways that they portrayed the Christians and the evil things that they did. And so here's Tertullian, hundred and some years later, trying to defend the Christians and say, Hey, look, if you look deeper at these people, you're going to see something that you don't understand and you don't know about. He wrote, On the monthly day... Christians, if they like, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure, and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house. Such, too, as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many others to put a brand upon us. Quote, see how they love one another how they are ready even to die for one another. And that line, see how they love one another, echoed through the centuries as the moniker of who these Christians were to the outside world. Justin Martyr writing from Judea, also in the second century, writes, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or another country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Clement of Alexandria Egypt 2nd to 3rd century he the christian impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother he likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain and if he suffers any hardship because of having giving out of his own poverty he does not complain lactantius writing from Gaul, which is now France, in the third to fourth century, so moving forward. He was the last major Christian writer before the Council of Nicaea, before Christianity was on the direct path under Constantine to becoming a state religion of Rome just a few decades later. And Lactantius was also, became an advisor to Constantine the Great and a tutor to his son Crispus. And so he was well tied in. But listen to what he writes, echoing everything that the Christians were about. If we all derive our origin from one man, whom God created, we are plainly all of one family. Therefore, it must be considered an abomination to hate another human, no matter how guilty he may be. For this reason, God has decreed that we should hate no one, that we should eliminate hatred, so we can comfort our enemies by reminding them of our mutual relationship. For if we have all been given life from the same God, what else are we but brothers? Because we are all brothers, God teaches us to never do evil to one another but only good, giving aid to those who are oppressed and experiencing hardship and giving food to the hungry. And finally, there is Aristides of Athens, writing from Greece in the second century. And this was another letter called the Apology of Aristides, and it was a letter of defense to the Christians. It was delivered to the Emperor Emperor Hadrian right around 124 to 133. He writes, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. And whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly, and he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of the poor passes from this world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And and if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. And they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that no one should notice them. And they conceal their giving, just as he who finds a treasure and conceals it. And this part is in your handout if you want to follow along. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them. And for their food and their drink they offer thanksgiving to him. As men and women know who know God, they ask from him petitions which are fitting for him to grant and for them to receive. And thus they live their whole lifetime. And since they know the loving kindness of God toward them, behold, for their sake the glorious things which are in the world are... Blow forth into view. It is enough for us to have shortly informed your majesty concerning the conduct and the truth of the Christians, for great indeed and wonderful is their doctrine to him who will search into it and reflect upon it. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine, a divine admixture in the midst of them. I love that a divine admixture. God mixed in with these people and their relationships, their daily life, how they conduct themselves in community. And there was a key line there, right? Since they know God's loving kindness toward them, the glorious things in the world flow into view. Because they know about God's perfect love, this degreeless love, the glorious things of the world flow into view. And these are not necessarily spectacular things. These aren't the big things. They're just the things that reflect God's nature. They can now see with the Father's eyes, having that experience of perfect love. Like I told you last week, just visiting Marion at Lowe's and seeing the little container of praying mantises that had hatched from their pod, hundreds of them, this explosion of life. Once you've experienced God, you can see God in the bugs. It really doesn't have to be something spectacular. But you go through life with this changed viewpoint, this changed attitude. Everything has different colors now. Everything is lived at a different intensity. Not all the time. Of course not all the time. But these are the sketches of people that were transformed by this experience of degreeless love. Now, I can see the unity in the world, how everything connects, how everything belongs that other people miss, because they can see through the diversity to the oneness that is beneath. And this experience of degreeless love is what casts out the fear, casts out enough of the fear, at least, so that they can take risks. They can risk. Doing the things that they do for each other. They can extend themselves to others. They can speak truth to power and take the consequences for having done so. They can treat enemies as friends, risk getting burned by extending that kind of faith to someone who's been an adversary. And yeah, these are sketches that were written by Christians, and so you can say, hey, now, isn't it just a little bit exaggerated? Isn't that coming from a certain point of view? And the answer is, yeah, it could be, absolutely. And as we said before, not everyone was transformed to this level. But what you can't deny is that this living love that was exemplified and characterized in the early church was the driving force until the power and the orthodoxy took over. It was so strong that the Romans could not extinguish it by force for all their trying for over 200 years. It kept growing. It kept drawing people into itself because that this love was so attractive. This love was something that people so needed. The Romans could not extinguish it by force. You know how they did extinguish it? <laughs> they extinguish it by making it a state religion of the Roman Empire. They extinguish it by giving it the power of the Roman Legion. That extinguished this love, and the institution of the church became something else. That doesn't mean that the people didn't keep practicing it. In fact, this was exactly the time that the desert fathers and mothers left their cities and left the empire out into the wilderness so that they could re the love, the basis, that they felt that the church was losing. But the church was so strong in their love before them, in those early days, God's degreeless love was this divine admixture in people's lives. Now, we don't need to impoverish ourselves in order to be doing this, if you're following along. You know, we don't need to fast in order to gather and keep enough food in reserve so that we can give to others. And we don't need to be breaking people out of jail. That's not what this is about. But what we do need to do is first and foremost, confront our minds, confront our attitudes, and be honest with ourselves. Where are we really in this apprehension of degreeless love? Because most of us are still following rules. Most of us are still trying to obey our way, earn our way into God's favor and kingdom. And you can't do it any more than you can get into orbit in a Cessna. It's not going to work, right? And so to first confront our minds and realize that we're going to have to make enough of this turn if we're going to ever engage Jesus' way. Because remember, Jesus' way doesn't lead us to heaven doesn't take us to God's approval. It is simply the experience of this degreeless love. If we are willing to let ourselves decrease, if we are willing to let our egoic consciousness decrease, to strip everything down until there's nothing left between us and God and God's truth and his nature. Because when we become convinced of that, then we realize that the love that we so seek is already ours. And when that takes place, the fear subsides and we can move into a different experience of every moment of our lives. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, what are the concrete steps that we can do for that experience? That's what you're going to have to wait two weeks for. (laughs) Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Let's pray, shall we? <laughs> Where have you heard that before? Let's pray for a second. Father, thank you so much, Lord. It is it's absolutely mind-bending who you are. So mind-bending that we can't we can't uh, fearlessly get our arms around it at first. Help us to really be honest with ourselves about the way that we are processing our relationship with you, the way we think about it and what we're actually doing in it. So that if we still see that we are trying to obey our way, still fretting over our performance, trying to impress you, that we can step away from that and see more and more that it has nothing to do with that so that we can then take the next steps. That's it trying to get enough of our minds and hearts around at least the concept of who you are, Father, so that we can then have the experience to become convinced. That's what we want. Help us in that, whatever it takes, Lord. We give you permission to take us where we need to go, even if it's kicking and screaming. Dear Father, we love you because you loved us first. Thank you for your love and constancy and never let us forget that you always precede us in your love. There is no place we can go that your love is not already there waiting for us. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.